welcome to the uh, Burn Notice, po- um, the uh, Business Design Podcast. I love the Burn Notice reference, and you guys out there <laughs> listening will understand that in just a moment if you've ever watched that show. I'm Randy Baker. The thing I love about that show, you are Randy Baker. The thing I, I love am. about that show, Burn Notice, uh, is that, I don't know, every time people say the name of the show, there's like a, a spot in the opening credits that, that goes... We got a burn notice on you. It's just that one line. So anyway, we've got a burn notice on you, Randy. Yeah, so Dr. Kent and I are going to Auckland and London and... LA Airport. Yeah. LA Airport and lots of subjects today. Um, And we're talking to a very special guest. He will tell us about his first ever autograph and about the big looping cursive letters uh, and also some serious topics. Yeah, Randy threw the thing about sheep at him and I cannot believe what an eloquent answer he delivered. We're going to keep you intrigued by not telling you anything more. Um, Let's go straight to the interview. Nice to talk with you, Mike. Um, do you go by Mike? Do you go by Michael? Are you named Michael or Mike? What's um, are you named after the the thing that we talk into? Yeah, well, I, the, the, there's the whole drop the mic thing going on here, isn't it? No, I was <laughs> I, I was I was named Michael by my by my parents, and in the year I was born in in the country I grew up in in New Zealand, Michael was the most popular boy's name. Now you have to go a long way to find another one of them. I've moved over to the UK, and, and by and large, we don't. It's not such a popular name. I rebranded as Mike, I guess, when I was about seventeen at university, and thought, "Yeah, here we go. You know, I, I don't want to be Michael anymore. I'll be Mike. It's so much cooler, right?" And then a few years later, I decided to rebrand back again, and it completely failed to stick. So I've gone with the inevitable. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for that. Yeah, and I. I just have to say that I'm, I'm sure you early in your life you got the Michael Rowe the boat ashore reference, or is that was that not really? Yeah, a, a little bit of it. My my favorite moment though was was a few years later. It was an LA airport, so I was flying. I, I was doing a, a talk at a conference, a customer conference in LA, and I was on my way back. And I was lucky enough to being given access to the to the lounge, the Air New Zealand lounge. So I flew in New Zealand because they tend to be empty from LA to London, right? And so I'm flying that way. And I go into the lounge and the guy takes my passport and he says, oh, you're Mike Weston. He said, you're the guy from Burn Notice, right? And Because at the time, Burn Notice was a big show. And I said, well, I don't know if you realise this, but he was a character and, and I'm actually a... a <laughs> there's not a lot of close physical resemblance between the two. He said, yeah, 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 no. He said, no, I understand that. He said, I still want your autograph, though, because the folks back home in New Zealand will be super pumped that I've met Mike Weston in, in Los Angeles. It's like, yeah, fine, great, have my autograph, go for it. It's the first and, to date, only time I've ever been asked for an autograph. But, I, you know, I kind of treasure that memory. I love that. And that show, Burn Notice, actually was kind of, I, I watched uh, for a couple seasons. So, So as a kid, did you practice your signature were you ready for this uh this moment i i think i was i clearly recognized it was going to be a digital future and figured that everything was going to be done online so no i didn't bother with this writing stuff (laughs) nice so your signature is actually just sort of bubble cursive yeah pretty much with a yeah with a heart over the eye 
Yeah. I, do you know I skipped the heart? <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Randy, you got to rescue this interview. I'm, I'm going off the rails today. <laughs> it's going south really quickly. So you must be a rocket engineer, Mike. I, in, my, in my spare time, obviously we do that. You know, there was a lot of talk about rocket scientists when, when we started up down the path of doing a data science consultancy around about 2012. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really what I do, it's, uh, you know, I got the bug for, for, for being at the forefront of new stuff. In 1997, I started what I now lovingly refer to as my first digital transformation. And of course, in 1997, we didn't, you know, that, those words didn't go together. There was no such thing as a digital transformation. But I was working for a newspaper group, the Daily Mail and General Trust, and um, publishers, the, obviously the Daily Mail and Mail on Sunday here in, in the UK. And we decided that we were going to have a go at this internet thing and see whether or not we could make some kind of a business out of publishing stuff online. And just to put that in context, in 1997, the Mail on Sunday, which was the newspaper I particularly worked for, turned over about £100 million in advertising revenue. In 1997, the entire UK internet advertising scene turned over £4 million. So, you know, I went from... This high-yielding, very famous, well, well-respected um, industry into something where people actually didn't even know what I was going to be doing. I think that probably included me, if I'm fair about it. Uh, and you know, so you know, people would say to me, "So, do we call you when our computers break? Is that is that what this is going to be?" And so I'm trying to explain to people, "No, this is this is the future, guys." Within about two years, they were knocking on my door saying, "Can I have a job? Because that's that looks what you guys are doing is really cool." So, you know, I, I therefore think of myself as a visionary and a, and a forward thinker, which is why my, my famous sense of timing meant that I decided to, to stop taking a salary and, and go into a portfolio career and work from home in November of 2019. Oh, wow. Yeah, great, great timing, that, wasn't it? Yeah, slightly ahead of the crowd. But, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But, yeah, the this, this sort of that consulting industry took a big hit so have you kind of been on the the receiving end of that with your business i had to completely rethink what i I thought i was going to do and because i you know i'm I'm a fundamentally sort of simple sort of guy i tried to think in in terms of of of, you know what do we do with the things that that life has presented us with so because i was having to reimagine my business i decided to write a book which the working title of which is Reimagining Your Business. You can see where this comes from, can't you? <laughs> it's based on my experiences throughout a career at the, at the edge of where data and technology and, and business meet and, and thinking about how you build agile frameworks for delivering value to people, not just engineering products, but, but actual sort of constructive value to, to, to other businesses. Uh, so it's built on my experiences of doing that and a lot of the thinking that I did around um, when the, the whole crisis started 18 months ago and thinking actually that the, there's a real opportunity here for us to to come back after this, this coronavirus thing has, has settled down a little bit and experience something I refer to as post-traumatic growth. Because, you know, once you've had a big crash as we've had, a big trauma as we've had societally, emotionally, whatever, over the last 18 months, the opportunity for you to turn around and build something fresh and exciting as you come out of it, I think is is both you know, really vital, but also really exciting. But I think if we're going to do that, we don't just want to go back to November 2019. 
and, and tried to recreate the things that were there, I think we can build it better than we had it, than we left it two years ago. Uh, so that's kind of that's that's my mission. That's what that's what sets the whole thing up. So I love the idea of post-traumatic growth. I think that's awesome. How does that connect with escape velocity? Well, so you know, in the dark days of March last year, when everybody was was shutting everything down and thinking, "What do we do?" I thought, well, you know, we're in a period where everything is on a hiatus. And when we come out of it, we need to make sure that we've got escape velocity. We need to make sure, firstly, that we're pointing in the right direction. And secondly, that we're going fast enough to be able to break free of the gravity of the situation that we've just come out of. So that was that was the thought process behind it. It would have been the title of my book, but somebody else got there first. So, you know, Jeffrey Moore, he's reasonably well known. So, you know, I can't, I can't quite argue with that. I have this uh, image in mind of, of Zed first when I heard Escape Velocity. I was thinking, you know, Randy's had a, a part of big part of his career was in the space industry, new space. So I was thinking about a, a rocket ship. But then now that you spoke about it, uh, for some reason I have this vision of like, you know, in sort of comedy films or in cartoons where the character will go all the way back to the edge of the room and then just just run as fast as possible so they can run through the door you know so I, I like that you just to get out and there's so much in science and in um everything else that that shows like for example weight loss like you know you got to puncture you got to cut through that you got to have that escape velocity and then stay there right so it's always like there's that how do you get out of that sort of normal curve of life so what what is it about you Mike, that makes you want to escape from that sort of simple life curve? Well, the thing I, 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 I get the most, I guess, adrenaline rush from is, is, is really living at the edge of change. And my point of view is that, is that change is not, is not something to be feared. We, we scapegoat change, I think. You know, the, the, we, we have this idea that people are afraid of change. And I, I believe that's wrong. I don't think people are afraid of change because the very air we breathe in changes by the time we breathe it out, right? We convert it from oxygen to, 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 to carbon dioxide. Chemical stuff goes on and you know, change is a constant factor of our lives. The reason we think that people are afraid of change is because we're afraid of what change is going to cost us, what we're going to lose because of it. And we're kind of, you know, there's a behavioral piece in there that we're, we're hardwired to think much more carefully about the things that we think that we're going to lose rather than the things that we're going to gain. So I think we need to change, if you like, our relationship with change. And we need to embrace it as being something that creates opportunity as well as threat. We need, to, obviously, to deal with the threats, but we also need to be able to take advantage of the opportunities that come from it. And that's, you know, if, if I think about everything I've done over my career and think about everything that I've done in my personal life alongside of that as well, you know, change has been something which has constantly refreshed and revitalised the way I approach things. I am an optimist about the world. I do tend to believe that we have the ability to make things better. I recognise also that we don't always make things better. And that's, you know, it comes back down to this escape velocity thing. It's fine sort of running at a million miles an hour and, and, and heading in a certain direction. But we've got to know when to change course slightly, when to adjust, when to, to, to vary our speed a little bit. Because actually we need to think not about the straight line route to where we're trying to get to. We need to think about actually how we deal with the buffeting that takes place as we go through. You know, if you think about, I think it's Stephen Covey that talks about the idea that a pilot in an aeroplane spends something like 85 to 90% of his time adjusting course. And the, the objective of, of that is to make sure that you're taking 
into account what's happening with weather conditions, for example, so that you make sure that you reach, you reach your, your destination at more or less the right time. Uh, sometimes a little early, sometimes a little late, but you still get to the same place. I'm going to take that a step further and say, actually, sometimes you're in mid-flight and you realise you need to go somewhere else. Hopefully not in a sort of a Belarus-type thing where you get uh, diverted and, and arrested at the end of it, but changing your direction because you find a better destination that suits your actual, your actual goal a little bit better as you go through. So I think, firstly, change and direction are, are, are critical to, to survival. And secondly, recognising when to alter course becomes really incredibly important as well. Sounds almost like the, the concept that you're presenting of change is sort of adaptability. It's, it's change, but it's also the ability to land in Belarus. Uh, that's a bad version of change, but, but the idea <laughs> that you can, you can say, oh, okay, hey, we got to land in Detroit or something. Yeah, yeah. we got to land yeah. in, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's, it's a little way from Minsk, but yeah, that can, that can work. <laughs> there's, a, there's also, a, if we take the escape velocity analogy, when a spaceship takes off, it gets to a certain height and it stops going up. We'll do a turn and it will fly parallel with the Earth to reach the speed to be able to break out of the atmosphere. So it requires change in direction to actually reach escape velocity, which is very interesting. Um, what you were talking about then was if you reach escape velocity going in the wrong direction, it's probably not going to be a good result. There is always the opportunity for things to, to, to crash back down to earth, aren't there? Um, yeah. You, know, you, you kind of want to find ways of avoiding that. Sometimes that's going to happen because you've, you've made a mistake in, in plotting your course. Sometimes it's going to happen because stuff outside of anything you might have foreseen is, is going to make a difference to that. Well, you know, what are the critical tool sets uh, in the, the framework that I put together? I put together this five forces framework around mindset, planning, data, motivation, which carries in areas of incentives and those kinds of things, and finally, trust. If you think about the planning piece of it, historically, we've been used to setting out quite long-term plans and sometimes quite rigid plans. One of the things we found during the, the early days of lockdown was that a lot of people who were business leaders were kind of stuffed because they were so used to their approach to planning the following year or longer was to take the previous 10 years of trading data and to massage it a bit, make some improvements here, some growth points there. And in a, in a post-pandemic world, that, that model breaks because all of the ground rules that made the last 10 years work no longer apply. Everything has fundamentally changed. So what do you do about planning in those sorts of situations? So one of the key tools that, that uh, I help people to work with is around scenario planning. And you know, scenario planning famously you know, made Shell resilient against the oil shocks of the 1970s and has been a, a, a central part of the way in which they've done business over, over the last sort of 50 or so years. It doesn't, though, have to be an organisation of that size and that scale that, that, that takes the, the scenario planning approach. It's about turning around and saying, OK, what are the plausible sets of circumstances that could happen and how do I make sure that I'm prepared should one of those sets of circumstances turn out to be the case? And then having flexible, adaptable plans in place that you can switch to so that you're ready for what the world throws at you. That's not to say that you can predict everything that's going to happen, but it puts you 
in A, better shape if one of those scenarios does come to pass, and B, it breaks you out of rigid thinking, which means that you're starting to practice the idea of flexibility that allows you to be better prepared. Your, your muscle tone, if you like, is better prepared for coping with the uncertainty that comes next. I think that's quite a useful set of skills. So speaking of kind of useful skills, um, did you develop this framework in early childhood? Was this something you were, you were kind of three, four years old in New Zealand around the dinner table saying, hey, hey, mom, hey, dad, I got this thing here. Let me pull out my whiteboard. Yeah, I, 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 we didn't quite, you know, whiteboards hadn't quite made it to, to, to Auckland in, <laughs> in my childhood days. No, not quite. I'm, I'm not that child prodigy. But it is based on not just getting things right in my life, but getting things wrong as well. Look, I mean, there was a moment in uh, about oh, several years ago now where I used to claim a superpower, and my superpower was denial. And it was a really handy superpower in some ways because it meant that when, for example, I got up on one good Friday morning at two o'clock in the morning and fell over and gashed my head open and found myself in, in, in hospital, I didn't stop and think, oh, look, there must be something wrong with me. I'm going to go and find out and, and check out to see whether there's something really serious going on. I took it at face value when the GP said to me, what you've got is low blood pressure, so just be careful when you stand up. The reality was that for several years, I had a brain tumor building inside my head, right? And I went through years and years and years of this thing becoming more and more uh, intense and large and, and disrupting my ability to think clearly and to move clearly. And it was only when I finally went along and said, right, I think probably is something wrong here because I'd been for an eye test and they'd found something, um, that when they pulled it out, I had this moment, you know, almost it was fairly significant surgery, right? So I wake up under a little bit of morphine, maybe that had an influence. And I woke up and the clarity of thought that I had, even at that moment, was so different from what I'd spent the last few years sort of feeling as this, as this tumour had built up. This is where, Randy, this is where this idea of post-traumatic growth comes from. And it's actually a, a psychologically acknowledged thing. I'm just applying it into a, into a commercial world a little bit here. But I was experiencing post-traumatic growth. I was experiencing clarity of thought. And one of the things that I realized was that denial is not such a great superpower. It's something you have to overcome. It's a piece of the mindset you have to really overcome. And if you're going to get past denial, that means you have to have a response to be able to deal with the stuff that life throws at you. Uh, so, yeah, it, it kind of it, it came at me relatively late in life, but it, it was it a was pretty formative uh, experience. And I thought about the different decisions I might have made at other points in my career that might have made me better equipped to deal with some of the stuff that, that, that life threw at me. Uh, so it's become a bit of a passion of mine to, to figure out how I can help other people to equip themselves with these skills. So I want to jump back a little bit in time um, to Auckland, New Zealand, mm. the land where there's more sheep than people. And the sheep industry is uh, currently suffering significantly uh, for a whole lot of reasons. And I guess my question is, how do you foresee scenarios where entire industries can be impacted and how does that affect your thinking? I'm, I'm thinking scenario planning. So a whole industry gets impacted, but you're just this little sheep farmer, you know, 20 miles outside of Auckland, and you can no longer sell your wool. Um, what do you do? Well, I, I think there's a, there's a few different 
approaches to that. I, I'm not going to claim to be an expert on sheep farming, though I, I have been enjoying the uh, the Jeremy Clarkson experience of him uh, raising sheep on his farm. I don't know if you've been watching that. But there is, what I would say is that on a, on a macro scale, I was lucky enough to go along to New Zealand House in, in London about two or three years ago. And Jacinda Hatern was... Uh, was giving a talk to about 50 or 60 of us. And she was on her way over to, to, to Davos to talk about some of the stuff she was talking about there. And this question kind of came up there. It was, you know, we're in a world where, you know, if you employ a bunch of people in their 20s, you'll probably find that at least half of them are, 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 are vegan. And the other half are vegetarians who wish they were vegans. What do we do about lamb consumption in a country where 60 million sheep, 70 million sheep is... is such a big driver of the economy. And her, I think her answer was really interesting because she said, well, what, what we do is we think, well, okay, we're not going to suddenly stop selling products from sheep because they're there. You know, the, the, we have this, this asset or this stock of 20 for every human uh, sheep. So what do we do with them? Well, what we do is we make sure that there will still be some people, by the way, who will still buy lamb. So we make sure that we create, we're able to create markets where the lamb we sell appeals to the people who are going to pay top dollar for that lamb. So we make sure that we look after the sheep properly. We maybe reduce the numbers over time so it's not 60 million all the time, but we make sure that they are taking advantage of the things that, that New Zealand offers, which is this fabulous environment where the sheep get actually a decent life while they're going. And we think about actually how you really just cater to the high end of that market rather than think about it as a mass market. So you cut your, your, your wool cloth, if you like, according to, to, to what is still there in the marketplace. And it comes back to this concept of, of, of reimagination. It comes back to saying, okay, fine. So what are the assets that I've got? What can I do with what I've got? How can I do something that's going to be appropriate to what the future is? As someone with enough acreage 20 miles outside Auckland to be able to, uh, to, to, to run enough sheep to, be, to have historically been... <laughs> commercially viable. I'm sure there are other things I could do with that 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 land. Not necessarily selling it to the highest bidder for uh, for building on, but you know, there are, there's all kinds of stuff you can do with that that kind of land. And it's about looking down and thinking, okay. Steve Wozniak was a great believer in this. This is where the whole think different thing came from back in the in the eighties, wasn't it? Is this idea that every now and then you stop, you look at what you've got, and you think. Never mind about the fact that, that we've got this sunk capital approach that's got us to where we are. If I look at what I'm doing now, what I'm trying to do now, what is the best way to design it? How do I think differently about what I've got and what I produce from that? And I think that's, that's really what lies at the heart. Beautiful. I, I'm feeling a little sheepish uh, trying to follow that up with, <laughs> sorry, had to do it. I've been sitting there for minutes just, just figuring out how to say that. But, I kind of want to say bar humbug, but that's a bit cheap, isn't it? Bar humbug, yeah. <laughs> so uh, I love that. And I um, that went over my head in some ways, which makes me really happy uh, because uh, I think that's the beautiful thing about business is when you enjoy hearing people talk about things that are a little bit outside of your subject area. So that was really fun. And speaking about your subject area and your business, tell folks about your, your upcoming book project, your website, and who who are you looking to connect with? Really, um, who I'm looking to connect with? Ah, I can't speak. Lost the power of, of, of diction, which is always a problem on a podcast, isn't it? You were you um, were cha- you were channeling the sheep too much. You were. You, I think you know. that must be it. Yeah, 
It's getting a bit woolly. Um, so the that's gone far enough. So the people I'm trying to connect with are people who want to, who, who want better. There's a lot of talk around this concept of future of work because I think one of the things that we've figured out is that we can do things better than we used to do them before. Now, future of work covers a lot of different aspects. It covers how you handle things like the mix of remote and, and, and in-person teams. It covers how you motivate people. Uh, you know, Is it about making sure that people are sitting at their desk from, from nine to five or whatever those hours are, or do you measure them according to the outcome of the work that they produce and the quality of work? Do we move from a, a world where we control and command everything that happens to a world where we empower people to, to do their best work and lead their best lives as, as we do so. You know, how does that then play out for the other stakeholders, the shareholders, the owners of the business, the customers of the business, the partners of the business? So people who are asking themselves those kinds of questions in the businesses that they run, who are trying to figure out how they make the future of work better for themselves and for the people that depend on them, and who buy from them and who work for them. Those are the kinds of people I, that, that I'm, I'm trying to reach. Um, to do that, you know, I do a number of things. I do, every now and then I'll do a, a keynote talk. I also, to reach larger numbers of people, I to also run uh, sort of workshops for up to 25, 30 people around particular subjects that help us to sort of steer in that sort of direction. I will also do uh, one-to-one coaching and, and mentoring around it. I also spend a bit of time you know, working around the, the digital transformation question. And I, I help to, to, to write and create a course for digital transformation with a company called Open Classrooms, uh, which is in partnership with Stanford. The people who do those courses get a, um, a master's certificate at the end of it, master's diploma at the end of it uh, in, cool. in digital transformation. And that's super fun stuff to do as well. So there's a range of different things that I do. It keeps me, keeps my thinking fresh. And you know, you know, I, I learn a lot from the people I work with as, as students on these courses as well. And that helps to inform the way in which I, I guide people that I work with on a one-to-one or, or one-to-many basis from there as well. And where can they find you? Is it your personal website or the company site or LinkedIn or what's best? Mike-Weston on, as, as a LinkedIn ending. Uh, my website is uh, escape-velocity.co.uk. Dot com hasn't come up yet. I'm keeping an eye out for that one. Uh, but yeah, uh, escape-velocity.co.uk is the, is the website. I love the, um, just as a closing statement, I love the pacing of your, um, the way you speak, the art with which you speak has a real calm to it and a pacing. So it, it, it rises and then it calms and it rises and it calms. So I don't know if folks have talked with you about that before, but you have a very great lilt to your voice. Maybe it's a New, Ze- New Zealand thing. I've, that's really kind of you to say so. No, I've, I've not had that said to me before. It's a, it's a pleasure to hear that. I've really enjoyed uh, the, the the tone of your conversation as well, Kent and Randy both. Uh, we've got three competing accents going on here. It seems to work out quite nicely. I like that. So thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real blast to speak with you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, thanks, Mike. I really love the things that you talk about. Uh, I love escape velocity. I love post-traumatic growth as a concept. Um, I wasn't aware that that came out of the medical field, but uh, thank you for sharing that story. It was very touching and encouraging at the same time. Yeah, it was a very unexpected turn of 
story and it was beautifully delivered within our conversation and and really moved me as well i think uh when we're given that gift of you know being able to continue living and and doing our work and it reshapes everything uh and so it was it was uh wonderful to have you share that with us uh really really moving and your sense of humor uh, it was also pretty good so for all our listeners who wish to not be traumatized by websites and by people giving you pictures all the time, we'd love you to go to Thought Partner Group and fill out our free assessment. It only take you a couple of minutes. You won't be traumatized. And we'll spend a couple of minutes and we'll get back to you. And if you end up being traumatized by it, you can, uh, you can um, uh, scream for a while and then visit us at crazymba.com just for kicks. Yeah, crazymba.com. Get smart fast.